I'm going to say this. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people since to, of over 21 years. And I've seen when you ap apply breathing exercises direct way, you can have to decongest your nose. You simply decongest the nose by holding the breath. The more the child or adult breathes through their nose, the better their nose works. The worst thing that a child or an adult with a stuffy nose can do is mouth breathe, because if they mouth breathe, their nose gets worse. And all of the exercises are free. You know, we put them out. All of the children's exercises are free. They're out on YouTube. They're in our app, Hello. the Integral Clinic app. All of the adults' exercises are out there for free in the Oxygen Advantage app. So the exercises are out there. And this is almost putting the information then into the hands of the, the, the general person, the normal person on the street. You can put these exercises into practice and you can be working with your child and showing them the importance of breathing in and out through the nose. Simple exercise involving holding of, holding of the breath to open up the nose. So I'll show you as follows. You sit down, the child, you can use your phone. Mom or dad uses their phone. <clears throat> and I might just keep going with the exercise. I know we've lost Katrina. And you simply place the phone underneath the child's nose. And you ask the child to breathe onto the screen. And then you check the halo. And you will see that one side of the nose is a little bit um, more stuffy. Um, by virtue of there's less moisture from one side of the nose than there is from the other side of the nose. To open up the nose, you simply take a normal breath in through the nose, out through the nose, pinch the nose, and nod your head up and down while holding the breath. You can start off five times. Five, four, three. And then you let go and you breathe in through your nose. So in other words, when the child holds their breath for five nods, that will help a little bit. And then you could try it again a half a minute later, and this time try it for seven nods. You ask the child to breathe in through the nose and out through the nose and pinch the nose and hold for seven nods. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Obviously the child isn't talking, I'm only talking for a demonstration. The child is stopping breathing, they're holding their breath during that. And then wait 30 seconds and do it again. So what I would say is, if you want to teach your child, you have to teach yourself first. And whenever parents come in with children, we work with the children, but we're also teaching the parents. And um, mm. very often the parents will have the same issues that the child has. The parent has sleep issues. The child has, the parent has a stuffy nose. And, you know, the, the thing is a few points here. One, if the parent can improve their sleep by improving their everyday breathing and breathing in the neck through their nose, well, then the parent will automatically start working with the child because then they will get it. And that mm. same parent may have struggled during school, may struggle on their day-to-day -day because if the parent is sleepy, poor sleep does impact mental health. The, we are more irritable, as you spoke about earlier on. We have cognitive difficult and we have fatigue. So those are the three symptoms. Mm. Now, I often find it interesting that those same three symptoms are the symptoms characteristic of people with mental health problems, such as depression, yep. cognitive difficulty, irritability and fatigue. Mm. So you have somebody, say, with a mental health issue and they're going to their psychotherapist and they're, they're telling their psychotherapist, I'm sleepy. I can't concentrate and I'm irritable. And the psychotherapist is approaching this from a, a mental health 
problem, but not thinking about sleep. Yes. And this is where we need we need a joined up thinking. Um, but like it does come back to if we can get the parents putting it into practice, then the children, the parents are more likely then to be working with their children because the parents will get it. And 50% of parents, 50% of adults are waking up with a dry mouth in the morning. If you wake up with, with a dry mouth in the morning, you are not likely to wake up feeling refreshed. Yeah. Get the mouth closed first. We need to help parents understand their own symptoms may have stemmed from childhood developmentally and don't have this genetic component that they believe they're passing on to their children. They said, oh, you know, my child is a, finds it hard to with language uh, and writing, but I have that struggle too. Or my, you know, depression runs in the family and anxiety runs in the family. Well, a lot of people have dysfunctional breathing, which would create a stress response and um, impact sleep quality and impact cognition and impact emotion regulation and all of these things. So parents are coming up against all these gaps in the medical profession because when they see their child needs adenoid tonsillectomies, they go to the ENT specialist to have them removed. And, of course, it helps a little bit to open that up, but the child probably still has disordered breathing and sleep apnea uh, because the ENT didn't think, well, should I check the child's nasal breathing? Should I check that they hold their tongue in the right position? We need to stop the mouth breathing that's creating a lot of inflammation, creating a lot of cognitive problems, emotional problems, and the ENT doesn't know. And then the child will have a speech uh, impediment in some cases, and they go to a speech therapist. And unless that speech therapist knows about myofunctional therapy, that's, that speech, speech therapist university degree actually didn't cover the tongue's role in nasal breathing. Anything about mouth breathing, they only concentrate on the tongue function for articulating, which is crazy. So they'll be working on getting this child to speak more clearly not realizing that that child is mumbling their words because they're trying to breathe through their mouth and articulate, but their tongue has to stay low to keep the airflow. So the tongue's not making all of these sharp movements. It's sort of staying in the bottom and mumbling, and they don't know this. So you really need to inject my functional therapy into a speech pathology degree, a medical degree for an ENT, um, a general practitioner's degree, a dental degree. Many dentists don't realize that the tongue is creating a lot of malocclusion issues. The mouth breathing creates the issues. And so a parent goes to their general practitioner saying, my child's struggling. You know, they've got various symptoms and the GP doesn't know about breathing and sleep and doesn't look inside the oral cavity and assess what the tongue is doing and how the breathing is. And so we really want parents to understand from experts like yourself and, and going to a myofunctional therapist or an orthodontist who is well-versed in orthotropics and, and realizing this is the pathway to health. And there are signals on our face that give us clues. As you said, the double chin, that's not necessarily someone carrying extra weight. That's someone lacking bone in the face. It's a diminishment of bone. If the bones had grown to their full size, it, everything's held nicely and it's not going to droop. And if the child has the flat cheeks and the lips that hang open or maybe the ears that pull slightly forward because these bones are falling in or the eyes that have narrowed in and the nose that's starting to pull back. And, you know, they look cute even when they're mouth breathing at age two or three. But by the time they're five or six and you're starting to see the teeth don't have any gaps between them or maybe are overlapping, 
and the child's starting to get this elongated flattening of the face, there are markers that we can tell parents this, these are markers of a compromised airway because anything diminished here is compromising the size of the nasal cavity and the oral cavity. A beautiful face is a marker of a big airway. It is, and no one's telling us this. We like a supermodel's big broad cheekbones and big eyes on the face and broad dentition because they signify a fully grown maxilla, a well-placed mandible and unobstructed airways. And um, it is really just that clear. And it's not just the beauty that we can take note of. It's that when the breathing is disrupted, it's going to create manifestations in children that can look like poor attention, poor schoolwork, behavioral issues, bedwetting, you know, because it, tell me if I'm wrong, is it that a carbon dioxide buildup in the blood um, tells the body to, oh, it weakens the muscles, it weakens muscles around the bladder and then the bladder releases at night because that child's um, CO2 levels are too high. So these vital bodily functions are affected by our gas exchange of oxygen to CO2. And this is where breathing comes into just basic function of our body. Sometimes a photograph is, is very important. And um, I was on a Ryanair flight, I was sitting in the second row on the right-hand side. And those of you who travel by Ryanair, you're probably familiar with that photograph. Now, the reason that I took that photograph, so this is an image that's on the front, front of the, the plane. The reason I took it is because if you look at that child's dentition, and I'm not sure how well that comes across there, but you see that this child has a beautiful broad smile, but you see that she's got plenty of gaps between her teeth. Now, as a young child with a baby dentition, you want to see plenty of gaps between her teeth because when she loses her baby teeth, you know there's going to be plenty of room for the adult teeth to erupt and that child is not likely to have overcrowding of teeth. So because of her really well-developed face, she is less likely to have overcrowding of teeth and you'll see that there. Yes. The, this is... Um, if you travel by Ryanair, Katrina, I lost you there a little bit, so I kind of explained yeah. it now. The reception's a lot better now. Yeah. Traveling in Ryanair, you see that this photograph here, this is the image right at the front of the plane. And there's, of course, three individuals. But the reason I took it was what's most striking is the young child. Now, I don't know if you can see her from here, mm. but can you see that she has gaps between her teeth? Yes. You also, you don't see black triangles either side. In other words, if we were to look at this child's face, we can count maybe one, two, three. Um, it's just a little bit dark. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight teeth. And yes. it's often if somebody smiles and you're counting the number of teeth, you know, how well does that person's mouth, their jaws fit their mouth. Now, yes. the, the guy as well. So the man in the photograph, He's obviously chosen because he's a good-looking individual. Mm. And again, you don't see black triangles either side of his mouth. You mm -hmm. see a very U-shaped, wide arch. Yes. And that is going to be more telling in terms of there's sufficient space to house the tongue. The airway is better. Now, the woman 
and she's very attractive, slightly narrow, but mm-hmm. again, you know, fairly well developed, a little bit narrower. The man is more pronounced, and so is yes. the young kid. Um, mm. But I think if, if you look at any magazine, if you go down to the local news agents and you're looking at the images of the, the models on the front, when they smile, count the number of teeth that you see, because the more teeth that you see during the smile, it's giving you a clue as to how well developed their jaws are. And, yes. you know, you could take it one step further. I often use the example of Prince William and our and Princess Kate Middleton. And when Princess Kate Middleton is, is giving a smile, you see that she's got a beautiful, well-defined. And when Prince William is giving a smile, you will see the, the black triangles and the narrower facial structure. And it's interesting because here you have a couple. And oftentimes, of course, we select our partners based on looks. You know, and there's a reason that we select our partners based on looks. We want to attract a partner that's pretty good looking because we know a partner that's pretty good looking is healthy. And that's very, very important because I often wondered why, why is, why is individuals, why do we want, why do looks play, play a role in the partner we select? It's not just that we are physically attracted to the individual. There's something innate in our genes that we are attracted to this person because we know they are healthy. Now, I went into different towns and, you know, this is always out of curiosity. And if you go into a very deprived area and you look at the facial structures um, and this may be that the facial structure has changed as a result of, you know, poverty and poor nutrition and poor lifestyle. And I know I'm not going to say that this is always to be found in deprived areas. You, of course, will see it in any area, but you may more likely see it in deprived areas. So mm-hmm. this isn't a generalization or anything like that. Um, but what I would say is to the listener, pay attention to people's faces because yeah. it's almost that you can see a person's life written in their face. And we also have to ask the question that here's the impact of the environment, whether it's nutrition, whether it's poor breathing patterns, whether it's stress, whether it's excessive smoking, excessive drinking alcohol, and does that then, is mm. does that trickle down through the generations? Interesting. I'd like to say to people, if they could understand, beauty is not, some people are born with great genetics and some people have bad genetics. Beauty is really a synonym for health. It's really the physical manifestation of a body functioning well. And for some reason, we've been looking at the body as though it fluctuates from the head down in accordance with lifestyle choice. Um, But this is fixed. This isn't responding to lifestyle. Of course it is because our bones require impact and exercise to stay strong. Our muscles require strength to also create more bone underneath. And this is why we tell the elderly to keep up weight-bearing exercise to ward off osteoporosis. Now, our faces are losing bone because, especially in the last 100 years, with all of our cooking gadgets that whip a puree, juice, smoothie, we've got microwaves that just make everything sloshy when we reheat it, um, blenders and whatnot. But what I find interesting is that since the refrigerator was introduced in the 1930s, the way we preserved food radically changed. So the only way our ancestors could preserve their meat was to dehydrate it, add salt and pepper, hang it up, and it became brittle biltong, which is like a healthy form of beef jerky. 
and it was so chewy. And I eat it now. I try to eat it um, to keep my bones strong and I give it to my son. And it's just the best exercise our jaws could ever receive, along with raw vegetables. And, you know, I don't expect people to get rid of their refrigerator, but when we had the refrigerator come in, now meat was processed. It was turned into ground and minced beef, sausage meat, thin cut, cold cuts, and it sat in the fridge cooled. And you don't need a lot of mechanical loading to break it down. It's a few gentle chews and you swallow it. Whereas our ancestors have to grind and grind and grind to break down dehydrated meat. And it's flavorful. It's nutritious. It doesn't require harmful additives like nitrates and these things that are going to keep the meat redder for longer so that it can survive its trip to the supermarket and to your house. It doesn't need those things. The interesting live experiment is that if we went to Central Africa, to Nigeria and Tanzania, where they don't have electricity widespread, they're actually having more a primitive hut without a modern kitchen, no refrigeration. So it's still the norm in these places to eat biltong. And I speak to people, um, a few people cases, and they say, yeah, we didn't grow up with fridges. So we always had to cut meat into medallions, dehydrate it, and that's how we ate the food. Now, they always have big maxillas, big, sharp cheekbones, wide smiles. Their teeth have gaps, even in adulthood sometimes. Their jaws are big and healthy, which would be representative of healthy airways. But the dental community hasn't jumped on this yet because the studies in these areas say, oh, malocclusion affects 70% of Africans in Central Africa. But when you look at the data, all of the Africans have malocclusion one. And the way they measure that is they say, if there's gaps between the teeth or um, there's a tooth that's crooked, they'll say that's malocclusion one. And for listeners out there, this is normal occlusion. Malocclusion one might have a twisted tooth or something. But malocclusion two is the jaws don't line up because you've got a tucked in mandible. And malocclusion three is still a, a weak maxilla, but this is jutting forward. So the last two, malocclusion two, malocclusion three, are the face not growing to full size and creating an issue. But malocclusion one is a face full size, but maybe they don't have perfect teeth through wear and tear. And I don't know why gaps is considered an issue because it's representative of a big jaw. So we've thought, oh, they've got problems like the rest of us. Well, the rest of the modern world, they have about malocclusion one, 25%. Everyone else has got like a degree of malocclusion two or malocclusion three. We're having way more issues. So we can't treat malocclusion as just a teeth issue. Malocclusion two and three are face issues. The face isn't growing to full size. And I find that fascinating that we're not, we're not joining the dots on faces are not growing properly and it's lifestyle getting in the way. We've changed our world so much, our cooking practices and our preservation a lot. And those things will have repercussions day in, day out. So yeah, lifestyle, it's, it's head to toe, isn't it? It's not just, it's not just ear down. And and parents can start to look for these signs in their children, flat faces, narrow eyes. Here's something interesting, Patrick, the inflammation connection between being on the spectrum, ASD, and asthma being more prevalent or sleeping disorders being more prevalent amongst the autistic children group. Well, there was a study saying there was an autistic facial phenotype and the phenotype of the autistic face was masculinized. So it had a large forehead, a small mid face, and I'm assuming a masculinized jaw somehow wasn't fitting right. 
Well, what they described is actually the face characteristic of obstructive sleep apnea. If you're small here, your forehead will look relatively larger and your jaw may look masculine. Like when we're small here, we don't breathe well and we don't sleep well. And the symptoms of sleep disordered breathing can look a lot like being on the spectrum, not being very social, not learning very well, not being emotionally flexible, delays, speech impediments, all the things. And we're saying everyone's got autism. <laughs> but there's not this facial type that happens to be genetically inherited with autism, I don't think. That's my opinion. I think it's not adding up for me. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's been, I think you're right. Um, again, I, I can never put it that that absolute direct connection between all children with sleep issues and autism. But I would say to any parent with a child with autism, how does your child sleep? And very often you will get the feedback that the child's sleep is very, very poor. Now, is it the autism which is affecting the child's sleep quality or is it the child's sleep quality which is affecting brain development? We know that that link is there. You know, when you were talking about craniofacial, I was just thinking about uh, C.B. Tomes was the individual who coined the phrase adenoid faces back in 1872. And for any parent listening, just put into Google and put in adenoid faces and click on images and you'll start to see these images of all these children. And they all have this characteristic that Katrina was talking about. Now, it's not the enlarged adenoids which have caused that facial change. It's the enlarged adenoids which cause mouth breathing and mouth breathing result in tongue resting, poor resting posture leads to an elongation of the face, an narrowing of the face, um, high palate, infringed nasal airway, which in turn is further going to feed into mouth breathing. The tongue, if it's resting in the lower jaw, can be pushing the, low, the lower jaw forward that you spoke about. So parents, again, you know, just put that into Google and ask yourself the question, like, it wasn't the enlarged adenoids per se that caused that face it was the enlarged adenoids which caused mouth breathing. Now mm. there's another conversation. It's not just that all children, it's not that all children who mouth breathe have enlarged adenoids. Children who are mouth breathing because of any obstruction to the nose, but also behavior. So if you have a child with rhinitis, a stuffy nose, um, a child, especially if they are allergic to dust mites or animal dander, and if it manifests as nasal obstruction, that's going to cause mouth breathing. And it's difficult to get find out exactly the instance of mouth breathing in children, but the studies that I've looked at, they tend to vary depending on region to region. So this could be something like urban versus country or developed world versus undeveloped world. Um, mm -hmm. But it can range anywhere between about 10, 15% to 50%. So we have studies in Japan, 35% of children and 45%, whether they were breathing through the mouth during the day or during sleep. Portugal, 55%, Brazil, 50% to 55%. So again, now, how did the researchers quantify mouth breathing in these children? Again, that's another question um, because I'm sure it's very difficult to have a standardized protocol to be able to say definitively if this child is a nose breather or a mouth breather. I, as an individual working with kids, if I see a child coming in, walking in with the mouth open, and two minutes later, I look at the child and the child is the mouth open sitting down. 
and five minutes later the same child has that same mouth open well then listen you know it's pretty obvious that that child at least while the time that they are in front of me they're having the mouth open and there are questionnaires available online that have been tested with with children and orthodontists and the questionnaires do have a series of questions to try and ascertain mouth breathing versus nose breathing and you know i suppose the other thing katrina is then like what is the protocol in making the change you know you you alluded to it earlier thousands of children get adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy but very few ear nose and throat doctors will actually will actually do respiratory rehabilitation post-surgery mm-hmm. if you treat the nose and you open up the nose it doesn't mean that the person will use it and whether you're a child or an adult it doesn't matter if you've had the mouth open for six months and you're breathing through it for six months it is mouth breathing syndrome now you have a behavioral issue so mm-hmm. by just fixing the nose is not going to necessarily change the behavior and like when I'm working with kids, you're always wondering, like, why is this child breathing through the mouth? Is it because of nasal obstruction? If it is nasal obstruction, is it the front of the nose or is it the back of the nose? So we start having them do exercises. I have them wear a little piece of paper tape while they're in the, the class with me. And then I have the children run and jog with their mouth closed. And if the child is able to jog with their mouth closed, I'm pretty comfortable that the child is actually able to breathe through their nose because the children that I've seen with enlarged adenoids, once we tape them up, now we do the exercise to help open up the front of the nose, but they're not, it's not going to work so quickly on the back of the nose if it's an enlarged adenoid. So the children with enlarged adenoids, once I tape them up with our parents, it's, you know, it's only paper tape and it's during supervision that if the children are feeling a degree of air hunger and pulling off the tape due to air hunger, even though we've, we've opened up the front of the nose, if the child continues to have air hunger, I have to suspect that the problem now is the back of the nose. So it's a kind of helpful way. So you're looking for that and you're also then wondering, well, I need to change behavior. We have the children wear tape during the day while they're watching television, while they are distracted, while they're playing games, because we always want to associate the nose and the brain. One is connected, you know, in terms of breathing. So yeah, maybe a couple of pointers for parents. I'm interested because, Patrick, you said your daughter had an adenoid tonsillectomy. And um, so that was probably related to mouth breathing. At what age were you able to retrain her habits? Was that a difficult task in instilling this new relationship between nose and breathing and brain function? Because, you know, children, they're not very aware of their habits and breaking poor habits can be difficult when they're little. At what age have you found is the starting point for retraining nasal breathing if they don't have an obstruction yes in terms of she was born with quite a narrow palate i see we've seen this from day one and she also had a high palate she has tutogenesis so she's congenitally missing one one tutor incisor which is common ish it's about 10 percent of the population um so she was a pretty good nasal breather. It was always something that I was conscious of. And I would notice that she would stop breathe, especially if she had a head cold. Now, I was ultra conservative at the time. I reached out to professionals. They told me that the best thing you can do is get adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy. Okay, follow that. I wouldn't do it again. Let's be honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, if I was to do it again, what I would have done is I would have brought her to a functional dentist first to help expand and develop her palate. 
I didn't. I did that anyway. Her problem yes. was anatomically she was compromised. And, you know, I think the adenoids are not just there for the fun of it. Tonsils are not just there for the fun of it. There was a study of 1 million individuals in Denmark and it was published in 2017, looking at the impact of adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy in children and looked at them as adults, 30 years. It was, I think this study was over 30 years or so. It, it increased their risk of developing respiratory conditions two to threefold. So again, you know, these are the things that you learn after the fact, unfortunately, but I would say to a parent, if you do have a child and you suspect enlarged adenoids, it's only an ENT that can actually diagnose that. And um, I would bring her to a functional dentist first and explain to the dentist, you want forward development of the growth. You want to bring this maxilla forward mm. to help open up the space at the back of the nose to allow the child to breathe through it. Because then the child by breathing through the nose is harnessing moist, warm, filtered, nitric oxide laden air coming directly down the back of the nose, down the throat, which in turn is helping to quell inflammation. Um, and then the, the enlarged adenoids and tonsils can shrink by themselves, do it for three months or so. Of course, above all things, we do want to address sleep disorder breathing, but there's two ways to do it. And I wrote about it in, the, in my own book back in 2020, I published a book called The Breathing Cure. And I put in fairly significant sections on it because again, this information seems to not have got out to the general population. Um, and it's out there, you know, like go in and go in on PubMed and you'll find it, just Google it, put in oral breathing malocclusions and it comes up something like 800 papers. You know, there's 800 papers that are citing a connection between mouth breathing and crooked teeth. Now, again, it's the chicken or the egg, but of course, one is feeding into the other. The connection is there, you know? Yes, it, yes it's fascinating, the connection. Um, and especially the nitric oxide is so overlooked in health. I mean, by nasal breathing, we get the nitric, nitric oxide to go into our circulatory system and open up our blood vessels so oxygen can pass through easily to where it's needed. And when we oral breathe, we bypass this very important um, aspect of circulation and oxygen carry. Um, so if the circulatory is constricted, your heart's pumping very hard and fast trying to push blood through constricted arteries to get oxygen where it's needed. And so this is the connection between obstructive sleep apnea and mouth breathing and cardiovascular issues. And cardiovascular disease is now our biggest killer. And so are chronic diseases. They now kill more people than infectious diseases and accidents and trauma. So the role of inflammation in chronic disease, it, it's always there. If you have a chronic illness, you have inflammation. And inflammation is often this um, byproduct of dysfunctional breathing. Um, this should be common knowledge that nasal breathing helps carry oxygen to where it's needed and filter that air. And because it's that slow respiration deep into the diaphragm, the body has time to extract the oxygen and then also time to release carbon dioxide on that slow breath. But when we oral breathe, it's that thoracic chest breath. The body is starved of the opportunity to actually get the oxygen out and the cops, I mean, oxygen in, carbon dioxide out before another breath. 
and the arteries are restricted, so whatever oxygen is coming in, the lungs are on overdrive, the heart's on overdrive, trying to get it where it's needed. And so your body is in stress. And we know that a body in stress chronically is creating inflammation. And inflammation in the brain will manifest as anxiety and depression. Those are the symptoms. Anxiety, I mean, sorry, stress in the body will be inflammation, a disrupted digestive system. People will have gut issues. People will have cardiovascular problems long-term. There's so many chronic illnesses that, have a, that could be related to inflammation caused by dysfunctional breathing, which, as you say, is now affecting a huge portion of the population. No one's looking at it. I mean, some people are, but the mainstream message isn't there letting people know. Nitric oxide is it's a very interesting gas. It was first identified on the exhale breath of the human being in 1991. So I suppose because it's only been relatively discovered fairly recently, it probably hasn't got that degree of attention. Now I'm talking about nitric oxide from the nose as opposed to nitric oxide in the blood vessels. Um, the nitric oxide from the nose plays a remarkable role, you know, in terms of sterilizing the incoming air. As you said, it helps to open up the blood vessels in the lungs for a better gas exchange to take place. It helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs. It helps to open up the airways. It's a bronchodilator. And it's also an airplane messenger that there's some communication then with the, the throat that nitric oxide seems to play some role in terms of sleep. Like everything is interconnected. When you breathe through your nose, you get better recruitment of your diaphragm. And your diaphragm is also mechanically linked with the upper airway dilator muscles in the throat. When you breathe through your nose, you breathe slower. And there's improved gas exchange, oxygen transfer improves by nearly 10% with nasal breathing. And in terms of stress, there is a link between your breathing patterns and the autonomic nervous system. If you have a typical breathing pattern that's faster and harder, that in turn can imply that your what's called the baroreflex or basically the autonomic nervous system is in an increased stress response increased sympathetic drive so that then of course can feed into inflammation and faster and harder breathing impacts sleep faster and harder breathing get can get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the lungs from the blood this in turn then drives up blood ph which in turn can increase neuronal excitability so the brain gets becomes more excited you know so there's a lot again joining the dots here there's a massive huge connection the human body is just so complex and you know of course the theory hasn't always caught up you know like if i was to talk to an ear nose and throat doctor and ask how does holding of the breath actually open up the nose some of them may not know they may not you know they may not have an explanation the explanation we have is that it activates increased CO2, stress response, and the blood vessels in the nose shrink. That may not be right, so we don't know for sure. So the theory, sometimes we feel that we have to know for sure how something works before it's espoused. But the issue and the thing about breathing is that, number one, is there's no side effects from improving somebody's breathing patterns. Okay, it does take some time, but if you improve somebody's breathing patterns, you are giving them the tools to self-regulate. You're giving them the tools to help improve their sleep quality, but also improve their state of mind. You know, there is a way to breathe that's innate to the human being, and it's not breathing in and out through the mouth. It's not breathing high in the upper chest. It's not breathing faster and harder 
with irregular breathing patterns during rest, that is dysfunctional breathing. So, yeah, there's, uh, you know, I think on the basis that you can learn these tools pretty much free of charge, you know, you can. Like, I started writing, my first book was in 2003. It's called Close Your Mouth. I put everything into it. I've written 10 books since then. And the reason being is because I was getting frustrated. Nobody seemed to listen. Nobody seemed to want to know why, you know, what can we do to help ourselves? And I feel it is very empowering. And I would say this, Katrina, if somebody was to ask me, what is the biggest potential that breathing has in terms of changing your breathing patterns? It's your state of mind. It's that ability to be able to concentrate. It's that ability to have a decent attention span that you can hold your attention for a period of time. It's that ability to be able to bring a quietness to the mind that you're not consumed by overthinking. And, you know, we don't have to be have states or diagnosis of anxiety or mental health issues to be overthinking. It's very, very common. Overthinking is, is prevalent amongst the population. And the more we are caught in our mind, the more we overthink, it's draining of energy and it reduces our contentment with life. If our mind is all over the shop, we are not content as human beings. That's right. It's absolutely true. The mental health consequences of dysfunctional breathing are significant. And this is the reason yes. I moved away from clinical psychology towards lifestyle medicine and my functional therapy. I trained in that, even though I'm not a dentist or a speech pathologist, because there's an anatomical biological there's a disruption in our physiology that's creating a sympathetic overdrive and these anxious thoughts and anxious breathing, it's playing a huge role in your life and, and quality of thoughts and quality of sleep and mood, more so than cognitively reappraising your problems. I mean, if you have anxiety and depression and you go to a counsellor, psychologist, and they want you to reappraise how you see all of your problems, I mean, there's some benefit. But before we get to that, make sure, does the person sleep well? Do they breathe well? Do they have vagal tone? You know, do they have a parasympathetic dominant state where their body comes into a calm state and digestion and everything functions well? These are more baseline core needs before we look at how do we reappraise past traumas. If you are, if you are functioning well, you may find healing emotionally much quicker. So, yeah, I really want this to be common knowledge for people so that they can live their best lives and, and possibly lead a very different life to the, what they would have had they stayed in a toxic state of not breathing and sleeping well. You're half mm -hmm. the person you could be if mm -hmm. you never get that right. And we're seeing, yes. you know, and for children, it's a really sad thing to think if that, that doesn't get fixed and they have that for a whole lifetime. I agree, totally, absolutely. And um, I just found it interesting what you said. You would go to a functional orthodontist as a first step as a parent. Um, you know, go and see if they can have their jaws broadened before going down the adenoid tonsillectomy route. It is a tricky one for parents because I know a lot of orthodontists, they won't want to expand a child until they're age five in some cases, four to five. And some parents look at their kids as two and three-year-olds and they go, oh, this child's snoring or gasping for air. And I know my kids have done this. And I can relate that my children were born with tongue ties. And I didn't catch on to that back when they were little babies. It's something, it kind of instigated me delving into this topic more and understanding the role of the tongue and breathing in everything else that's happening in our body. 
So it's, it's hard for parents to navigate which option to go where. It's very time costly. You get passed around a system of referrals. I know I've spent a lot of money trying to find the answers and a lot of time. And so if we had a clear action plan for parents on what's the first step, who should we approach first? Is it a my functional therapist? But then again, my functional therapy can be difficult when a child is three years old because they're, they're so immature cognitively that they won't follow the instructions very well. So unless they're four to five, maybe they'll start to catch on. Um, yeah, it's a difficult one. But if we had awareness off the bat about tongue ties, if my first two children were born in a hospital and um, no one cottoned on about the tongue tie, no one screened for that. One midwife said, oh, maybe you should check that out because breastfeeding was a little painful and difficult. Um, but once I got past the first difficult two weeks, I thought, oh, you know, we've adapted. It's okay. The information wasn't there online to say tongue tie can create mouth breathing, which can alter the anatomy of the face, which can create all of these other issues beyond speech difficulty, beyond feeding difficulty. This can really mess up their development. But the information wasn't there. I thought, oh, you know, if he gets a speech like impediment, we'll figure that out. That's a short term problem. But boy, the hurdles of having to do a phrenectomy when they're a three-year-old and retrain their oral facial muscle habits, retrain their breathing, um, have the surgery for the adenoid tonsillectomy because I just was desperate to do anything to open that up, knowing it wasn't the be-all and end-all, but it would be something until they could get the functional orthodontics. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. It's tricky. So this is why we're having this conversation so parents can know about tongue ties. It's affecting about 10% of the population, I think the statistic is, which is fascinating. I don't know if there is a stat on it. Um, I looked at the stats in Ireland and they said it was 2%, but they, they didn't really know. So I think the it's, measurement, again, I think, is not clear between countries because in Brazil, where they're on top of it, they think it's 15%. Yeah. But whoever's measuring the length of the frenulum as to what constitutes a tongue tie, it's a bit vague. And so that's mm -hmm. why the data is a bit vague on how prevalent that mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. 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 Well, yes. I want to thank you for your time, Patrick, because you've you've delved into so many important topics that, um, yeah, it's just invaluable to the general public. And um, like you, I'm making it my mission to make this common knowledge so people understand how they can actually take their health by the reins and make a huge impact, even by retraining their breathing and their oral facial habits, perhaps even at home. Some people may need a skeletal adjustment with orthotropics, uh, which of course you need a professionally trained orthodontist to do this, but some people with myofunctional therapy and breathing could be the missing link. Uh, so it's just fascinating. I'm excited for how this industry will continue to grow and change lives drastically. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Katrina. Great conversation. Thanks, Patrick. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for your time. Oh, Patrick, Patrick, where can people yes. find you online if they want to know more? Because I know you have a new book coming out, or it's already um, out. It's uh, Breathing for Yoga, and you co-authored that yes. with James Nestor. Oh, no, James wrote the foreword. Um, I co-authored it with a yoga instructor, Anastasis Tanzi. So oh, my that's out. And... Uh, that's that's um for people to find out more information we have website butecoclinic.com 
and we're also on Instagram and uh, YouTube and we then have oxygen advantage as well. So there's quite a lot of free information out there um, yes. in terms of breathing. Okay, so the OxygenAdvantage.com and the Buto Clinic on social platforms. Wonderful. Yes, Buteco Clinic, website and social platforms, and Oxygen Advantage, website and social platforms. Fantastic. Some invaluable information there for parents. Thank you so much, Patrick. It was an honor to have your time. Great. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Katrina. Thank you.